name is Dan Brown, and I'm here today again with another A Lens a Day Conversations about Information Architecture. And today, I have the pleasure of talking to the effervescent Dave Dillon Thomas. David, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, so um, I wanted to talk to you uh, about information architecture. I know you come more from the content strategy uh, side, so maybe we can use that as uh, as our approach when we talk about process. I'm really curious about trying to kind of shed some light for people on the kinds of things that we do almost uh, behind the scenes. Uh, I've been asking folks a lot about how do they bring other people on this journey. But I wonder if I might start instead with you on what is some of the tools and techniques that you use when you're doing some of the behind the scenes stuff, when you're kind of, uh, you've gathered, you've done a content inventory, you've sort of pulled, uh, you've talked to folks about you know their needs or what have you, uh, their, the goals for the project. What are some of the analysis that you do behind the scenes? Sure. And, and, you know, full disclosure, these days I've been doing as much consulting content strategist as actual content strategy. But, you know, uh, back in the day, it was a lot of trying to start out with a goal of understanding the mental model of the user, right? Because if any information, any information architecture is useless if it doesn't respect the mental model of the user, if it reflects the mental model of the company or of the content strategist, it's really only going to be useful to the company or the content strategist, right? So the answer I'm um, always looking for, the question I'm always trying to answer is, what questions does the user have in what order? Like literally, if someone could just produce that for me, I'd be like, this is all I'm going to need. I can build a whole strategy around this. Thank you, right? Um, so any research I'm doing, any content inventory, like all, all the pieces I'm putting together and all the people I'm working with, right? The UX researchers and everyone that I'm working with is aimed at answering that question so that when I collaborate on the actual information architecture, it has that utility to it. And, and not for nothing, um, it, it has uh, you know the added benefit of being very friendly to Google. Like that whole particular question came from a friend of mine, Will Reynolds, who works in SEO. And he sort of described how Google can track your patterns of searching for something. Let's say you Google shoe and you go to a website and it tells you about shoes, but then you hop back out and you Google brown shoe. And Google interprets that as, oh, you answered the question about shoe very well, but you didn't answer the question about brown shoe. So <laughs> I'm going to penalize you for that, right? So it becomes a way you can almost use that bouncing back and forth to literally build the page and say, okay, first I have to answer your question. Yep, we've got shoes. Then I have to answer your question. Yep, we've got brown shoes, right? And that journey, right, that's being played out by actual clicks is representative of a mental model and a series of questions and answers. So if I can somehow crack that, I've got the most you know powerful IA I can think of. How that's great. I love that. You used uh, the phrase any IA is useless if it doesn't respect the mental model of the user. And was that deliberate to say respect rather than align with? Like I, you know, I'm always sort of talking in terms of aligning with the mental model, but I like the idea of respecting the mental model. I, you know, to be honest, I'm glad we're talking about participation. I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of research into participatory design right now. And terms like respect come up a lot in there. So I'm reading a case study right now about um, a library that was trying to uh, be more inclusive of the Native American population that was using it. And the phrase they used in their mission statement is we want to create a library that is um, deserving of our Native American audience. And I thought that was a really interesting 
way to put it, not just useful to, right? Or not even just aligning with, but deserving of. And so those notions of respect, you know, it's very hard to kind of do this kind of work, especially when you're, you know, doubling down on the inclusive aspects to, for it not to become about politics and power and who has historically been respected and not been respected. So even while I didn't consciously think I'm going to say respect instead of align, I think it's sort of in me now, <laughs> you know, to sort of gravitate towards phrases like respect. Because I do think, I think users sense that when they're in a space that respects them versus a space that's just accommodating them or maybe isn't accommodating them at all. I think it can go the other way. Like even though it, even though a, 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 an architecture that isn't accommodating to you isn't meaning to disrespect you, it feels a little disrespectful, right? If it's if it's making it harder than it needs to me for, for me to find this book or find that government service, it feels a little bit like you don't respect me, even if that isn't the intent. Um, so, as you sort of uh, think through and and arrive at a user's mental model. I'm curious about now, let's take this back to the collaborative space. Sure. How do you, uh, do you have techniques or activities that you do where you kind of share this with stakeholders to again, get their, let's just call it buy-in on uh, that this is in fact the mental model. How do you bring them in this journey with you? So the ideal approach, and I'll confess, I never got completely to this when I was you know, practicing on a daily basis, is for these stakeholders and the participants to be the one of the same, right? So for right. the users to actually have a level of decision-making power, because really when we're talking about stakeholders, we're talking about people who get to make decisions, right? They're deciding whether we're gonna go with this IA or that IA, right? And the user is largely left out of that decision-making process. Ideally, we get input from them, but at the end of the day, you know, so ideally what's happening is that we get to a point where we've convinced the stakeholder, this is going to be so much more powerful if it isn't just you making the decision, which is a really weird thing to say to a stakeholder. But like historically, we've seen that's a way more powerful approach. Um, in the world I, I inhabited, there was definitely, though, a degree of making sure that, um, you know, it goes back to selling research. Right. It goes back to saying, I need to convince you that I need to spend time if I'm building a website for um, a uh, utility. I need to spend time with the people on the phone answering questions about your utility or answering questions about billing before I build your billing page, because then I'll know what isn't working. What are people calling in about and using up the valuable time of your, uh, your customer service representatives? Right. And how are they answering that question? And how are they getting to the information to answer that question? Right. All of that stuff is telling me what is and isn't working about the IA and what, what shortcuts, because they're the user isn't just the person using the utility. It's also the person helping the person using the utility. So I have two interfaces to think about. Right. Um, so, so when you talk about like collaborating with stakeholders on, on, um, you know, making those decisions, I think, I think it is about sort of being able to demonstrate the value of, not just relying on my guess, but no, I need to hear what your users are saying. I need to hear what the people on the phone with the users are saying so that what I'm building is most immediately useful. You had uh, described mental models as understanding the series of questions that people ask. And that also really resonated with myself, with me, because I feel like um, there are a lot of ways that we can think of uh, mental model, right? Uh, sort of collections of nouns or um, uh, just a series of decisions. Um, I like, uh, you know, and those are all sort of variations on a theme, but you were very specific in that you said it's the set of questions uh, that users kind of arrive uh, with. 
again, was that sort of a, is that how you think about it? Like when you represent a mental model, are you saying, I'm going to show you a list of questions that users have, or is it, uh, does it vary? Do you have other ways of doing mental modeling? Uh, I had the privilege of working with a really great um, uh, UX professional and research professional um, uh, named Brittany over at um, Think Company on a particular project for a financial services client. And we created a site map after doing a whole bunch of research and talking to a whole bunch of people um, to kind of reconfigure the, it was their marketing website in a way that made ideally more sense to the people with the questions rather than the people who live and work in these different silos. And what I loved about her approach was when she built the initial sitemap, each section wasn't just, okay, this is capital gains. This is, you know, taxation or whatever. It was, this is the section that answers the question blank. This is the section that answers the question blank. And you could see when it was literally mapped out as a series of questions, the flows, right? The series of questions and answers, right? At least the theoretical ones, you could actually see a mental model rather than just like a card catalog, which is what most sitemaps feel like. And, and the really funny thing about that, just to get really geeky here, the initial like Dewey Decimal System, right? The, the, the godfather of all right? information architecture. The idea wasn't just to have a bunch of numbers corresponding to a bunch of topics, but it was literally meant to be a physical architecture for a building. Each you know, numeral was meant to represent a different floor, and each floor was meant to represent a different type of knowledge that mapped to Dewey's own particular colonialist idea of what was good and bad knowledge. But like the highest form of knowledge, I think it was maybe physics or philosophy was on the top floor, and then like, I don't know, math on the second floor, whatever. But, uh, but the idea was you could go to any library in the world, and just by knowing which floor you were on, you could know what level of knowledge you were at, right? So, so these things, you know, these things were meant to represent real structures of knowledge um, answering questions. Like that was always the idea, but, but it turned into this sort of like, more like a filing cabinet <laughs> approach to information architecture, which is easy, it's easy to get your head around, but I don't, I don't feel like it, it maps to mental models as easily. Um, uh, that's great. I, um, uh, I love the idea of kind of littering our sitemaps with here's what question this answers. And I'm always sort of looking for ways of humanizing uh, our deliverables. That is to say, try and represent the user in every deliverable that we create. Even if we're designing abstract structures, I want people to see, if not themselves, then someone they know uh, in, that, in that documentation. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, um, like, uh, well, let's go to, what are your favorite parts of the content strategy or the IA? process? What are the parts that you find sort of uh, get your engine going uh, that you find personally most uh, engaging? I really like uh, synthesis. I really like the idea of taking all of these interviews, all of this secondary research, primary research, and coming up with like the theory of the crime. I love like mysteries and thrillers. And I love the moment where, when they're like, they're hunting the serial killer and they have that aha moment of, oh, I figured out how he's picking up his victims or whatever it is, right? That sort of aha where they've cracked the mystery. And I feel like, you know, on a good research project, on a good IA project, there's this moment where you kind of crack the mystery of like, oh, that's what we've been missing about how people think about automotive repair or legal services, whatever it is. Like the, 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 the topic itself isn't, I found, the topic itself, like the, the context for that journey is, isn't nearly as important or as promising as like actually getting to know the people who take that journey. And it's like, oh, wow, you've cracked this mystery. So I love that moment in synthesis where you've 
you're, you're kind of collecting all your data and you're doing all your affinity mapping with stickies on the wall and you're starting to see the pattern emerge from the chaos. I think that that's what I like to see the most. Um, uh, there's just, there's a real thrill to that. And then you go through the process of documenting that and telling a story around it. But that moment of going from, I have no idea what's going on to, oh, I think I might know what's going on. That I think is what really gets me excited when in projects like this. Uh, it's never as tidy as a mystery story. No, 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 never. Yeah. And, and there's never one like, thing going on. Yeah. Because then you're like, shit, shit. <laughs> and, like, and now I need to fill in all of the details, uh, which I wouldn't need to do if I were a private detective. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They skip her all, over all that in the, in the mystery novel. Like, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm in the middle of this right now where um, uh did a bunch of work, came up with kind of the unifying model for everything. Um, and now comes, and I, I, like you, I love that part. Like, here it is, it all clicks into place. But like that alone is not enough to, you know, meet the needs of my clients. I've yeah. got to flesh out lots of details. And that's where it gets, not that it's, not that the, the main part, the, the model isn't hard, but for me, like teasing out all those details and trying to dot the I's and cross the T's on the model itself, that I think um, becomes really, really uh, challenging. And I think it gets hard also when you're starting to think, I'd love you to, to bring uh, inclusivity. Mm -hmm. uh, so I mean, we'll talk about the lens in just a sec, but talk to me a little bit about when you're kind of conceiving of these, uh, when you're doing the synthesis work, you are not just bringing, I assume you're not just bringing in kind of stakeholder needs, what you've heard from users, but a different angle with inclusivity. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that what that means for your practice? Absolutely. So so what I like to to advise you know uh, clients on is just the value of from the very beginning, a redefining what you're thinking of as uh, who who you need to hear from. We're used to thinking of I need to hear from my stakeholders, I need to hear from, you know, potential users and current users, like even getting to that can be a struggle, right? Just getting the research, but, but we don't usually expand that to who is being impacted by this, not who's buying it, who's being impacted by it because who's being impacted can be a larger lens. So for example, if we were launching Uber, it never existed before. We were just, let's do some research to figure out, you know, how to market Uber. Um, You'd say, sure, let's talk to uh, people who are in the gig economy because they might be our employees. Let's talk to people who don't have cars because they'll likely be our users. It might not occur to you, though, to say, oh, you know what? We should talk to taxi drivers. But taxi drivers are going to be impacted by Uber, but they are not customers. In fact, they're kind of the competition. But here's the thing. If you don't talk to them, you're going to talk to them just later in a courtroom. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so, so there's reasons to think about impact more broadly. And that's what I, what I, what I, when I'm talking about more inclusive approaches to these, these kind of collaborations, I'm talking about that. I'm talking about including, and this is what participatory design does very well. It says, I'm going to, I'm going to think about who has power in this process. Like who's going to be impacted by this thing we're working on, but really doesn't have a lot of say in how it turns out. And how do we give them more power? Because they have to live with what we build. And when you have that kind of mantra in your head and, and, and as a value, it changes who you decide to talk to and to include and whose mental models you decide to respect, right? Um, so I think when I'm thinking inclusively about those things, those are the kinds of questions I'm asking to really make sure from you know, day one, I'm budgeting for and making room for and time for talking to and getting input from and ideally even giving some power to some of these folks who usually don't get a say. 
Uh, and I think that brings us to a good moment to kind of switch over to the lens. Can you tell us what lens uh, you picked and maybe uh, describe it in your own words, if that would be okay? Sure, you. absolutely. So I picked participation uh, because, you know, uh, I mean, participation is really understanding, you know, I am going to, I'm going to this experience that has a particular way of organizing information. And does the way that it's organized actually help me participate, right? Is it treating me like a welcome guest or is it treating me like a nuisance, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or is it treating me at all? Is it even, is it even aware of my existence or of my needs, right? Um, and so participation, and I, and I think of it also though in terms of, that's sort of how it manifests in the IA, but I also think about it in terms of the building of the IA itself, right? Which is not disconnected, which is to say, when this was built, did it have me in mind? Was someone like me involved in the building of this, right? Um, so if you think about like how um, some websites organize names, right? Just how do they organize names? Do they think first name, last name, is that the structure? great, that doesn't actually account for how all people in the world to organize names. And does it have certain limits on like, oh, you can only have, if your last name is shorter than two letters, okay, sorry, we don't think that's real. Okay, guess what? You've just knocked out like literally a billion people on the planet, you know? <laughs> and that's even assuming they think of names that way, right? So there's all these ways in which if I arrive at that site and it's treating names that way, I already don't feel welcome. I, I don't feel like I can participate or I have to change something about myself in order to participate. I have to fake myself a little. And I can also assume nobody like me was involved in building that architecture, right? I think if one person who was like me built it, they'd be able to point out and say, well, actually, that's not how I do my name. So can we not do it that way? Um, so when I think about uh, participation, like those are the kinds of things I think about, uh, because that can be very, that can, not have, that, that can create a lot of harm intentional or not. Um, and we don't usually think of IAs as something that can cause harm, but that can cause a lot of harm, you know, uh, if it's not really, you know, thoughtful. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Dewey Decimal and in mm -hmm. a sense, it's sort of, uh, you know, as foundational as it has been, uh, one can see evidence that Dewey was not imagining uh, people participating, people who didn't look like him participating yeah. in this process or, or think like him he had like i said some pretty colonialist views on what was important knowledge and what wasn't you know like right, right. can you think of any good uh examples of um sites or projects that you've worked on where participation uh is high where where mm -hmm. it is a very clear invitation i like how you put it sort of a, a welcome guest you know they make the user mm -hmm. feel feel welcome have you seen any good experiences like that I, it's funny, like what first popped into my head yeah. uh, was uh, during the, uh, the height of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, um, and every company in the world was putting out statements, like their IA for racism was a letter, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I remember babynames.com. And if you opened up babynames.com, what they had was a big black field with white lettering and it was the names of the black men and women who had been murdered by cops oh my gosh right and these were and i think it said something like these were someone's babies too and i was like wow that is a much more powerful statement than any kind of corporate email you could have sent to your user saying that baby names believes that black lives matter it's like no baby names is making it very clear <laughs> By yeah. using up their homepage <laughs> to list 
a whole bunch of murdered people, <laughs> right? And not for nothing, staying in their lane in terms of like, we're a website where you go to learn about names. Right. Well, guess what? All these people had names. Here they are, right? Um, but, at the, but, but weirdly, I felt more welcome on that site in that moment by having that there. Because I'm like, okay, this is a place that's taking what's happening right now seriously, right? Versus I go to some other website and like maybe they have a like a black box. I'm like, okay, you're you're, you're not taking this seriously. You don't, right. I don't feel welcome here. You don't you don't actually care about this. So even though it wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was architectural in the sense of like they literally made it the first thing you see when you walk in the door. <laughs> um, uh, it, it 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 became a way for them to signal to me, yes, this is a place where you you are welcome. Like we we think you matter, and we think you matter so much that we're taking up the entire front page to to do something that might be considered you know grim or off-putting or, or or someone I'm sure was sending emails like how dare you, right. but we don't yeah. care because this is important. Uh, yeah. But that's the one of the most welcoming experiences in a weird way that I can really remember from a from a digital perspective. That is heavy. I have not uh, remembered that they did that. Um, and what's interesting is obviously as you point out even making such a statement can be uh, unwelcoming for sure. certain people, right? But, um, but I think it, it's clear that, um, that a site like that and when, when uh, digital products do more than just simply give us a black box, they are um, providing a clear signal that they are trying to welcome a range of people that it is top of mind for them that they're inviting more to participate um because i guess the flip side of that is trying to be everything to everybody yeah clear that that's not a workable strategy it's not i, I would point you towards or and point all of your all of your listeners to uh, margo bloomstein's latest work trustworthy which does a fantastic job of helping you know clarify that you can't the world we live in today doesn't let you or will not reward you for being all things to all people. You have you have to take a stand. I mean, she's she's pretty plain. You got to take a stand. You got to decide where you are, and you know, damn the torpedoes. I mean, I think that 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 as I'm I'm learning more and more. Like I'm what forty seven now. So what I'm, one of the things I've learned more in the past, especially in the past year, is that there is no such thing as consensus. <laughs> like like even things that you would think. Are just well obviously everyone agrees with this i mean come on like no or things that you think historically people agreed with um uh, even pensy moog who just uh, came out with a fantastic book called design for safety does a talk where she basically spends the first half of the talk talking about how it took 30 years for people to be down with seatbelts. 30 years actually a little more than 30 years but basically 30 years and like most people are like oh yeah seatbelts, but i don't even think about it i just do it right but in point of fact, that was not, and there was a lot of, oh, you know what? Putting your seatbelt on is dangerous because it'll crush your organs. It's actually safer to be thrown from the car through right. a windshield because if you're stuck in the car, what if it's burning? Like these were actual arguments people were making. Right. And like, and you're watching this talk and you're like, okay, I, I, I see what you're doing there, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but that's the thing. When, when, you, when you sort of come to terms with the idea that you are you literally can't be all things to all people because there is no all things. There is nothing everyone agrees on. You sort of realize, okay, we have to take a stand. We have to decide what our values are and we have to, to actually prioritize and bringing it back to participatory design. Like one of the, the radical notion behind participatory design isn't that, oh, you should be including these folks who don't usually get listened to. 
The radical notion is you should actually be giving them priority. That's the radical notion to say that the people who have historically been left without power in these scenarios are the people you should actually be prioritizing for, right? Um, and, and in a way, it's no more radical a notion than accessibility, which again, it sort of like feels kind of de rigueur now, but we forget the 30, 40 years of fighting that have been going for, for it. Um, but, uh, but to sort of say, no, you actually should be prioritizing for this particular you know, faculty or not. And, and I think that, and I think what we've learned is that when you do that, the whole experience gets better. And I suspect my hypothesis is the same thing. If you design for folks who have historically had less power, you will get good design for the folks who've always had power kind of for free, right? Like there's not as much of jeopardy there as, as I think folks seem to think there is. Um, but, but you do still have to make a choice and you are going to make people upset. Uh, and you have to decide, you have to decide who you're willing, who, who, who is it right for you to make upset, right? Who is it okay for you to make upset? And who is it really not okay for you like, to make upset? Yeah, it's funny because I, you know, I'll go to websites now and, and have become hyper aware of even just the imagery that they use. And if I see uh, homogeneity in the imagery, as much as those people look like me, I have also become suspicious of you know, the kind of uh, messaging and thought process, because it's like, it doesn't take, I mean, it takes effort, but it's important effort to take, as you say, like accessibility. And if they're not taking that effort on that, it makes me, well, it makes me wonder what else have they not taken <laughs> on, you know what I mean? So as you say, it sort of makes this, it makes the experience, uh, it, it lifts the experience for everyone uh, as yeah. well. One of the things that I've been asking folks is if you were to uh, give someone advice on how to make use of this lens, if you were coaching uh, a, a newer design, designer earlier in their career on how do you look through this lens at your work uh, and see and apply it so that yeah. you might uh, improve the work that you're doing, what might you say to a, to a, a designer like that, someone who's still trying to get their head around what does it mean to design structures? What does it mean to do content strategy? I would, um, I would encourage doing some version of an exercise called an assumption audit. And the idea is, this is typically something you do at the beginning of a project, but you can certainly use, you know, formulate it for work you've already done. But the basic idea is before you kick off, you get your design team in a room, you ask five questions. One, who, who are we? How do we identify? And you only identify as you feel comfortable, but you're thinking about things like gender or age or uh, income, just all these different intersectionalities. And the second question is, um, okay, well, how might those identities, you know, impact uh, or shape this design, the design of this thing we're working on? Uh, and then the third question is, okay, well, who's not in this room right now, right? Anybody, any of us here ever been incarcerated? Anybody here ever had their immigration status question, right? And then you ask the fourth question, which is, well, how might that lack of perspective compromise what we're working on? And then the fifth question is, what might we do to include honor and give power to those perspectives in this process? And, you know, I choose those words carefully, like include, sure, talk to some people, honor, maybe pay them for their time, uh, but uh, give power, right? To go back to that earlier question, is someone who's going to be, is there someone who's going to be impacted by this thing we're working on who has absolutely no say in it? And how do we give them more say? Because they have to live with what we're building. Now, I, like I said, that's something you're ideally doing before you even start the project. But if you already have a design, if you already have an IA, if you already have something to physically look at, you can still ask those questions just in, retro in retrospect and say, okay, well, who was in the room when this was designed? 
And what were they, what were their identities? Okay, who wasn't in the room? Okay, is there anything about the lack of that perspective informing this or compromising this design? And is there anything we can do but between now and when this thing launches? Frankly, there rarely is, but you should at least ask the question. But is there anything we can do between now and when this launches, or maybe even after it launches, to include honoring of power to some of those perspectives? Because this thing, someone is going to have to live with it. Dave, that was awesome. We will leave it there. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me.